there is an increasingly clear set of scenarios coming into view for the fall. The one that would be really disruptive would be a Sanders nomination or Sanders presidency insofar as he can turn his fairly extreme rhetoric into new regulation or new law. That was Dr. Christopher Smart, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode three of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, so the latest episode is in your podcast queue every other week. So on today's show, I spoke with Dr. Christopher Smart, Chief Global Strategist at Barings and head of the Barings Investment Institute. Throughout his career in finance, politics, and academia, Dr. Smart has served a variety of roles from emerging markets portfolio manager to senior economic policy official at the U.S. Treasury and the White House. In the conversation, we discussed the U.S. presidential election, including what we've learned from the early Iowa and New Hampshire results, how the next few weeks will be critical in determining a Democratic nominee, and scenarios for how the general election might play out. We do all of this from an investor's perspective, as we think about how this election may impact investor portfolios in the weeks, months, and years ahead. With that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Smart. Christopher, are you there? I'm here. Great. Well, welcome. Where are you calling in from today? Well, I'm calling in from sunny Dubai, where we've had some uh, meetings with some clients and uh, we're participating in the Milken Institute uh, Middle East and Africa conference. That's great. It's I've seen some coverage of the event so far. It looks like it's been quite an event, which is not a surprise given uh, the Milken Institute and the types of events they tend to pull together. Um, I saw that you were on a panel with the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. Um, how, did, how did that go? Any interesting inside scoops on the U.S. presidential election, which we'll be talking about today from from uh, the Speaker? No, he, he shared to some extent, uh, frankly, how surprised he was at the outcome of the last presidential election. But uh, I think he's trying to parse the race along with the rest of us. Uh, I think he feels like he knows Wisconsin really well, but everything else is going to be uh, a sort of a uh, we'll, we'll discover with the rest of us. Yeah, I guess I guess that's what we're all going to be trying to figure out, and that's what we're going to be talking about a bit today. So, the last time we spoke about the U.S. election on this podcast was last spring in our admittedly way too early uh, U.S. election preview. Um, at that time, if you'll recall, there were new candidates emerging almost daily. So many of those candidates uh, that were emerging then have actually now exited the race. So that includes people like Beto O'Rourke, uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and now, of course, Andrew Yang. So the field is starting to consolidate, um, especially now that the primaries are underway. So maybe let's start there. Iowa and New Hampshire are now behind us. Tell me, what did you learn from those two contests? 
I think what we learned from Iowa and New Hampshire is that the prospects of some of the favorites uh, have dimmed substantially. And first and foremost, of course, is Vice President Biden. It's not to say he can't make a comeback, but if he can't deliver in a state like Iowa, it's hard to know where he will come through. I think the other big news from New Hampshire is the bad result for Elizabeth Warren, who is from neighboring Massachusetts, who had been showing strength in her organization. And what seems clear is that her message hasn't been able to distinguish itself from Bernie Sanders and that wing of the party. Mm -hmm. And so I think that has been a clarifying moment for both the progressive left wing as well as the moderate set of candidates. So clearly, Senator Bernie Sanders, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and Senator Amy Klobuchar come out of Iowa and New Hampshire with the wind at their back. Um, And as you mentioned, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Vice President Joe Biden really licking their wounds after New Hampshire, finishing fourth and fifth, respectively. So quite disappointing from their end. Probably way too early to count anybody out at this stage, but um, it does seem that uh, the momentum at least is on the side of Senator Sanders, Mayor Pete, and and Senator Klobuchar. So let's talk about what's next. Um, In the next couple of weeks, we've got an extremely busy political calendar. So we've got The Nevada caucuses, February 22nd, South Carolina primary, February 29th, and then, of course, Super Tuesday, March 3rd. And that's where states that represent over one-third of the U.S. population will go to the polls. So tell me, what will you be watching for in these next couple of weeks? Well, I think the pivot from smaller states like Iowa and New Hampshire to a much bigger and more diverse voting group is very trying for candidacies, you know, at previous elections and will be very trying for the candidate that you just mentioned. It'll be particularly difficult, I think, for Amy Klobuchar, who really delivered a strong showing in New Hampshire, but doesn't necessarily have the resources or the organization in place yet. And we'll see whether she's able to make that jump. Of course, the other big story on Super Tuesday is Mike Bloomberg, who in many ways has been standing there tapping his feet, Mm -hmm. waiting for other candidates to catch up with him. He didn't compete in Iowa and New Hampshire, but as you know, you and our colleagues in North Carolina, he's been all over the airwaves there in California, in Texas, and he will be putting his candidacy to the test on Super Tuesday. Yeah, Bloomberg has been very visible on television, social media, other places. So it's clear that he's making quite an investment in some of the swing states. He has taken what would be seen as an unconventional approach, I I guess, at this stage by sitting out the first couple of contests, being absent from the debate so far. Tell me about this approach and tell me about um, what scenario kind of needs to play out in the weeks and months ahead for his candidacy to really gain momentum. Well, if you have many, many billions of dollars and you don't need to raise funds from anybody else, it's a strategy that probably makes a whole lot of sense. He's a name that's already well-recognized and going to devote a whole lot of time and attention 
to Iowa and New Hampshire probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. He also, of course, came into this race relatively late in the game. And so focusing on Super Tuesday and building up a very substantial campaign in these states gives him, you know, the position of not front runner, but certainly very promising challenger. At the same time, I should say, you know, he hasn't really gotten the scrutiny and the uh, chance to defend himself in a debate because he hasn't been participating in that. And so really comparing him to the other candidates, that hasn't really happened yet, nor has there been a lot of questioning and examination of his business career or his career as mayor of New York City. So that will come as well. Yeah, though though I would say he has seemed to have um, garnered the interest of President Trump, who seems to be tweeting about Bloomberg as much as any other candidate in the race. Well, I think, you know, uh, part of that is because uh, Joe Biden's campaign is kind of on the ropes, and that had been the president's main focus up until now. I think the other part of that is that I think he and Bloomberg go way back as New York moguls who have crossed swords a number of times over a variety of issues. Okay, so let's look past Super Tuesday to uh, what one of your colleagues recently coined Normal Wednesday, uh, March 4th. Do you expect uh, that we might have a clear or clearer idea uh, on March 4th after the the three contests that I mentioned um, on who the candidate will be at this stage? Or do you think that this nomination process will drag out significantly longer? Well, I think we will have a clearer idea. I think, you know, anything can happen. But if you, you know, held my hand to the fire today, it really doesn't look good for the Warren and Biden campaigns. It really would be surprising if Bernie Sanders did not emerge with a whole lot of delegates. And I think the question is, does the Buttigieg campaign have the staying power to capture the moderate vote that the Biden campaign has not been able to capture so far? And the bigger question mark is whether or not the Klobuchar campaign can kind of build on this New Hampshire momentum to finish to finish among the top contenders. So you could have a clarification between the Sanders progressive wing and the more moderate group of candidates. Uh, and that would again be, you know, Buttigieg, Klobuchar. And then the big question about whether Bloomberg can turn his money and uh, advertising time into votes. In I guess in the extreme case, let's say we're in a position after all of these upcoming um, uh, contests that we don't really have any clarity, that it's still very much split among a variety of candidates. Do you think in the extreme case, we could be headed potentially for a contested or uh, brokered convention at the Democratic National Convention this summer? Who would that favor or, or disfavor? Well, I think it's a very likely scenario, increasingly likely scenario right now. Uh, again, if you take a look at the alternatives and the rules around how delegates are allotted, and the resources that the different campaigns have, it would be really surprising at this stage if Bernie Sanders weren't a candidate at the convention. 
Hmm. It would be really surprising if you know, somebody, uh, whether it's a Buttigieg or a Klobuchar, weren't also at the convention. And, you know, and then you still have the Bloomberg factor, uh, which we'll see on Super Tuesday, whether he starts accumulating delegates and has um, staying power. And I think you could sort of see three or four different alternatives emerging. So let's think about all of this from an investor standpoint. Let's fast forward to the fall. Uh, we'll presumably have a Democratic candidate by then. We will have a Republican candidate as well. That will be President Trump, barring any hugely unforeseen events. So tell me what scenarios could potentially play out here, and then how is that impacted by who Democrats ultimately choose as their candidate? Well, I think for all of the uncertainty about the next few weeks or the next couple of months, there is an increasingly clear set of scenarios coming into view for the fall. And that is a choice among President Trump on the Republican side and either Bernie Sanders or a moderate Democrat. And of those three scenarios, the one that would be really disruptive would be a Sanders nomination or a Sanders presidency. Mm insofar as he can turn his fairly extreme rhetoric into new regulation or new law. Mm -hmm. Lots of big question marks over that. But I think one of the reasons the markets are pretty calm about that prospect is that the overwhelming likelihood, even today, is that we'll wind up either with a moderate Democrat or President Trump which would mean maybe slightly higher taxes under a Democrat, slightly more regulation, but not a dramatic change in our political or economic outlook. Okay. So, I mean, I know it's, it's impossible to say at this stage how markets will, re will react in, in these different scenarios, but it sounds to me like you're saying that a re-election of President Trump or uh, a moderate candidate for Democrats would be more of a steady state type outcome, at least in terms of how markets would take it. And the prospect of a Sanders or more um, extreme candidate uh, from the Democratic Party um, would be taken potentially more more negative. I mean, I mean, I guess you know markets are forward discounting mechanisms, so they won't wait until a November election to start you know, discounting this. So if it does become clear that uh, Sanders, for instance, is a candidate, what do you think a market impact could be? Do you think there'll be pressure on financials and healthcare and that sort of thing? Or, you know, again, I know it's an impossible question, but what would be your kind of best guess at this stage? Well, I'll just back up and say, I think markets still believe it's unlikely that Sanders will be the nominee because, you know, if you look at his numbers in Iowa and New Hampshire, they are you know, strong. He came in first or second, depending on how you count all these things. But he still has a minority compared to the more moderate candidates. If you add up the Bidens and Buttigieg's and Klobuchar's, you know, there is a great majority among Democrats around a more moderate candidate. Sure. Uh, the risk is that they're not able to sort that out, but that's still a low, I think, risk at this stage. 
Uh, if you know Sanders does emerge as the nominee, um, I think there will be a lot of volatility. Even though the base case would be he can't win, uh, he can't beat President Trump. There will clearly be a moments where there are doubts might arise that you know maybe he might he will prevail or he will have good weeks or uh, better weeks, and I think you know that will lead to a lot of bumpiness along the way. All else equal. And I guess there's so much focus on the presidential office itself that you know it's easy to forget that. You know, perhaps just as importantly are the other races that will be happening in November, you know, specifically for the Senate and the House of Representatives. So how are you thinking yeah. about that in the context of whether it's a reelected president or a new president and their ability to actually pass legislation? Well, again, it's hard to make predictions on these things, but it, it really does look like it's going to be a House and a Senate that will be very tightly balanced either one way or the other, but it's hard to imagine at this stage an overwhelming majority for one party or the other. Uh, it's, I think, historically always difficult for an incumbent president to bring a lot of coattails with him uh, and, and therefore take back the House or increase a majority in the Senate. And I think that means that we're likely to see you know, more uh, gridlock and confrontation in Washington, almost no matter what the outcome is. Let's talk about what other wild cards are out there that could potentially impact the outcome of this election. So what could be coming down the road here that could that that we're not even thinking about right now, Christopher, that, that could potentially throw a wrench in this whole race? Well, there's the tradition to worry and to talk about the October surprise, you know, something that, as you mentioned, will come out of nowhere, that an incumbent president might gin up to create an advantage. I mean, I think there's always a concern that a foreign crisis generally tends to favor incumbents. Uh, and I think that's something that markets, you know, can't really predict, but that's always, there's always a possibility of that. I think the thing that we are beginning to see come into view right now is this effect from the coronavirus in mm -hmm. China. Mm -hmm. There is a current scenario that this is something that will peak, do a lot of damage to the first quarter global economy, but response by fiscal and monetary authorities in China and elsewhere will actually give us an accelerated period of growth in the second and third quarters and should be good for the president. But there are a lot of assumptions and ifs and buts going into sure, that scenario, sure. so I'm not sure how much you can count on that. Almost impossible to predict again. Um, I guess, is there a scenario where that could go the other way and that it becomes much worse than expected and then you know, you're potentially dealing with how's the administration handling a, a crisis. I think that's absolutely a possibility. That's that's a possibility because uh, it it might speak to the way the administration has worked with allies or other countries, and to the extent that it's viewed that that has made things worse rather than better, uh, that could uh, hurt the president's prospects. 
Mm-hmm. I think the thing to keep in mind for this election, one of the things that makes it so unusual that we haven't really talked about yet is that you have an incumbent president who remains fairly unpopular in opinion polls, presiding over an economy that is quite good and for which he has been able to claim credit. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll just step back and say, I think the connection between what any president does and the current state of the economy is always a little bit tenuous because global events, the price of oil, inflationary foot pressures are all things that most presidents have very little control over. Sure. But if voters have a job, then that goes a long way towards keeping an income. Well, I think traditionally the level of the stock market and the price of a gallon of gas goes a long way to people's feelings about their future and their views of the current administration. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I'll tell you, studies that go back and look at the stock market and presidential years will show that the three-month period before Election Day is a very reliable predictor uh, whether the incumbent will win or lose. Hmm. You know, Christopher, we didn't talk about the validity of the results themselves. So this was obviously a big deal in in the wake of the 2016 election with the alleged uh, interference from uh, foreign governments. Uh, we also just saw some theatrics in Iowa around technology not working properly to, to count votes. So tell me, could this be a potential issue that we're dealing with again here in 2020? I think it could be a potential issue. I think what we're learning about our election infrastructure is that there are a lot of perhaps self-inflicted wounds which create doubts about the final result that have nothing to do with foreign interference. If you add on the prospect of foreign interference, a close election result could be damaging and corrosive to people's confidence in, um, in the vote count. But I think if we wind up with a result where it's not close, where there is a clear winner, um, that's probably going to be less of a concern. But you know, in the 21st century, I think that raises a much broader question about how you reinforce confidence in, in voting outcomes. Okay, Christopher. So, so taking it all in from an investor's perspective, there's obviously still so many unknowns about this election and, and obviously its ultimate impact on markets. But for investors today who are, you know, potentially tasked with making allocation decisions with millions or even billions of dollars at stake, what action would you be taking today in the months ahead um, to kind of navigate through this period of uncertainty? I think for most investors, the real big question mark is whether you have a president who's Bernie Sanders or who's not Bernie Sanders. The the Trump, not Trump question, I think affects a lot of other things related to our country, our foreign policy, our legislative agenda, and our courts. But I think in terms of fiscal and monetary policy and near-term growth prospects, a moderate Democrat, as I say, may raise taxes a little bit, introduce a few more regulations, but is unlikely to dramatically affect the near-term outcome of GDP. 
I think, uh, as we were saying before, a Sanders victory would call a lot of those things into question. Uh, but I think because that seems like such a low prospect right now, I think most investors are staying pat, unlikely to make big allocation changes. They'll keep a wary eye on the Sanders delegate count, but probably not do much in the meantime. Well, we will certainly have no shortage of headlines to follow in the year ahead, and especially in the two to three weeks to come. So we will be keeping a close eye on that. We will be, um, you know, surely coming back to you for more insights on this race as it develops. But I really appreciate you taking some time to call in from Dubai today. Um, and I really appreciate your insights on this race. They're extremely valuable. Well, it's my pleasure, Greg. And, and as you can suspect, people are in Dubai are watching this closely as well. So uh, as they are around the world. Absolutely. I can imagine. Well, safe travels. And uh, we'll talk soon, Christopher. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to episode three of the second season of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.